Amen. Kids, you know the drill. Up through fifth grade, you are dismissed to head to your classrooms. This morning, we have a very special guest, preacher, Dr. Greg McGee. He says you can call him Greg. I struggle to call him anything other than Dr. McGee. Uh, and his wife, Emily, is with us as well. Uh, Dr. McGee is a professor of biblical studies at Taylor University. He is the current professor of uh, Joe Hummerkaus. In fact, He's doing a little bit too good of a job teaching Joe because a couple weeks ago when I was preaching uh, the Joseph sermon, Joe came up to me after the service and said, I think you, you got this wrong. And, uh, and sure enough, that, or later that week I went back and looked and I had messed it up and Joe was, was exactly right. So you're doing a little bit too good of a job. Dr. McGee is also my former professor at Taylor. In fact, the summer between my junior and senior year, I signed up to take summer Greek uh, at Taylor, and um, but much to my chagrin, nobody else signed up. And so I don't know if you know the old TV show McGee and Me. McGee and Me was my life for uh, that summer, and uh, I uh, vividly remember uh, day after day he'd give lectures up front and turn around and ask questions like, "Is this a possessive genitive or a partitive genitive?" And I'd just like be desperately hoping for anyone else who could answer that question. And uh, there was never anyone there, but uh, super thankful for that time. Uh, not only did I learn Greek well that summer, but also how to study because there was nobody bailing me out. So it was really those skills served me in seminary and beyond. And uh, a few months ago, Joe texted me and said, hey, you, I have Dr. McGee this semester. You should come visit for a class. And uh, so uh, eventually we found a time for me to come and went and uh, was able to sit in on the inductive Bible study class. And those skills that you're teaching in that class are skills that I use literally every single week as I'm preparing a sermon. And so what you're doing, pouring into the next generation of teachers and pastors and missionaries is, uh, it is so, so important. And so it is a blessing and a joy to have uh, Dr. McGee here this morning. We are starting a series that will last the next 20-some weeks. And with me, you know that means 30-plus, but we're shooting for 20-something in the book of Ephesians. And I am so excited. Over Christmas break, I was just immersing and saturating myself in the book of Ephesians. I can't wait. When I walked into the class with Joe, uh, Dr. McGee handed me a book, and it was a commentary on Ephesians that he had just written. And so I uh, put two and two together and thought, man, it would be really neat to have Dr. McGee come and kick off our series with an overview of Ephesians. And so I'm not, I'm not preaching this morning, so I don't want to take any more of your time, uh, but so thankful that you've graciously agreed to come and preach. And so without uh, further, oh, take good notes. I think, is it an exam or a paper that's due at the end pop of this? Pop quiz. It's a pop quiz. Okay, so take good notes. There will be a quiz. Uh, but without further ado, please uh, welcome Dr. Greg McGee. Thank you, Mike. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning. What a joy it was to just worship uh, with you, and thank you to the music team for leading that. Just had a, a wonderful time uh, doing that. We, my wife and I go to the same church. We've been at the same church ever since we came to Taylor, and so we love our church, but it's also really fun to, to worship with other brothers and sisters in Christ as well. So thank you for this invitation, Mike, and it is a uh, so fun to see uh, Mike here. You know, think about, it wasn't that long ago that he was a student in my class. Actually, it was fairly long ago. But uh, it's so fun to see uh, um, your church and as a body of Christ gathering together and, and Mike uh, being a pastor here. That's, that's fun as well. And by the way, uh, Mike talked about the typical thing a student wants to do, and that is hide in a class. Uh, it's hard to do when he's the only student. 
I'm happy to say that Joe does not hide in his classes. He speaks up, he contributes, and so anyway, I've enjoyed uh, the Taylor connections with this church. So I've been teaching at Taylor for about 15 years. Um, before that, we were involved with campus ministry in various places, including four years in China, so that's a little bit about me. My wife, Emily, and I have been married uh, for almost uh, 30 years now, and uh, we have three adult children and a daughter-in-law. We also have uh, Emily's father who lives with us. Uh, he's actually at home with Emily's sister who's visiting us today, so Emily was able to come to church, and uh, Emily's a full-time caregiver for him, and also she teaches a chemistry lab for non-majors at, at Taylor uh, once a week. And we also have a dog as part of the household, last but not least. But it's great to be here. Um, so we are, the purpose today is to give you a bit of an overview of Ephesians to set Mike and the other pastors up for uh, preaching through this, this wonderful letter uh, for the weeks and months to come. And so I'm going to look a little bit at author, audience, uh, but when we're going to get to four key areas uh, that Ephesians taps into that would have been pressing questions both for their world and our world today. So we'll spend some time just getting acquainted with this letter as a whole, and then uh, you'll get the details of it in the weeks to come. I thought I'd start out with Paul's prayer for us that he gives us in Ephesians chapter 3. So I'm just going to pray that prayer for us, and this will be a prayer for both today, this message, but also for the many weeks and months to come as well. And it's a prayer that's in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. And so let's pray together as Paul uh, gives us this prayer for our lives and for our hearts. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start with uh, the first two verses of Ephesians, which introduces us to the author and audience. So advance the pictures here. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes it very clear in the very first verse that he is the author. So Paul identifies himself, though, in some interesting ways. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. So apostle is just one of those religious words we get very used to, but uh, it's worth revisiting what exactly the apostles were and why it was important to Paul that he was writing as an apostle to the church. He goes into greater detail later in the letter to the Ephesians. You can read about that at the beginning of chapter 3. But he talks about 
um, the apostles being the foundation of the church. Now, now, the ultimate foundation is Christ Jesus himself, but Christ chose apostles like Paul to be authoritative eyewitnesses that Jesus is alive, that he is the true Messiah, the Lord of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Paul and other apostles were sent by Jesus himself to proclaim this good news that Jesus lives and to teach authoritatively for the church what it means to be in Christ and be part of his family. So Paul is not writing just his own ideas or his own opinions in this letter, but this is divinely inspired revelation that God is giving through Paul, and he's speaking as an apostle sent by the will of God and representing Jesus and testifying about his life and ministry. Now, he says that this is by the will of God, and you can go back uh, various places in the book of Acts to read about how Jesus, was, how Jesus appeared to Paul and called him specifically to become an apostle. Later in Ephesians, Paul says, I was the least of all the saints. Paul was not seeking to be a leader of the early church. Quite the opposite. He was persecuting and opposing the early Christians, and the message which he considered was foolish, that this crucified criminal was actually the Messiah. Paul opposed this with all of his being. But then the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. And by the will of God, Christ chose Paul to be his spokesperson, spokesperson, to be the very mouthpiece of God to the church and especially to the Gentiles. So think about that as we transition to the readers of this letter. And Paul says it's to the saints who are in Ephesus. Saints is is one translation. It's also translated as holy people and others. And you think about uh, that's just simply a designation for people that have been made holy in Christ. So not the super saints of the church, but all of us. We're all saints if we're in Jesus Christ. That just means that God has called us by His grace and brought us into His family, and we are believers in Him, and we are His children, and we are, we are His people. And so that's, what, who's he's, who, that's who He is addressing in this letter, the saints or the holy people that God has called to be in relationship with Him. Now, it says that they're in Ephesus, and that is true. That was the major city in this area. But if we go back to Acts 19, we realize that Paul ministered not only to believers in Ephesus, but to a whole bunch of surrounding cities in that area. And there's early evidence that Paul intended for this letter to be copied and shared with churches all around that region. Uh, This was a region he had spent two and a half years in during his missionary journey to that area. And it had been a remarkable story of spiritual revival uh, in that area as people heard the message, the good news of Jesus, and responded in faith, and their lives were changed immediately. And they formed these small little house churches. They, they weren't meeting in a big auditorium like we are today, but they were meeting in people's houses, gathering together. Many of them had come from idolatrous backgrounds. When we hear the word Gentile, We shouldn't just think of, well, there's different types of people in the world. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. Gentile in that era meant idol worshiper, people who did not know the true God and were worshiping other gods and other idols. 
And so these saints in Ephesus had been called out of that lifestyle and were now meeting in small groups in this massive city of Ephesus and the surrounding area. And they were just these small little gatherings of people that had bought into this idea that Jesus is the Messiah and that the kingdom of God had begun to enter into our world. And they were meeting together, even though the world around them was opposing them and uh, was violently opposing them at times, as we'll read about in a minute. And so they were gathering together in a city of Ephesus. This city had 250,000 people at the time. It was the third or fourth largest city in the whole Roman Empire. So this was a massive, important city. And I thought I'd show, show you a few pictures. So I actually went on a trip to western Turkey with Mike's brother, when Mike's brother Stephen was a student at Taylor. And it was a number of years ago, but here are a few pictures of ancient Ephesus, and it'll introduce us a little bit more to that region and the type of world that we're dealing with as we start reading Ephesians. So it was an impressive city. This is just a gate that was made, uh, that, was in, that was there when Paul would have walked this city, and it was a very impressive, important city in the Roman Empire. And then we just have you know, beautiful roads that survive even to this day that are throughout the city that archaeologists have have dug up over the years and over the centuries. Uh, these are some terrace houses. Uh, these would have been houses for more wealthy people in this massive city, just built into the hillside. But imagine small groups of Christians perhaps meeting in some of these houses as they gathered each Lord's Day, like you are, to worship the Lord, and very much out of step with the world around them, uh, worshiping and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is very interesting. You wouldn't think of it just from looking at this picture, but this is the remains of one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. This is the remains of the Temple of Artemis, and that was one of the ancient wonders of the world, like the, temp like the pyramids in Egypt, and all that's left of it is just a few pillars that, are, that archaeologists have kind of pieced together as they've dug it up. But back in the day when Paul wrote this letter, there was this massive, amazing temple that was in honor of the goddess Artemis, of the, of the Greek gods. Uh, Artemis was, was one of, um, alongside of Zeus and other gods, uh, Apollo, uh, that were honored and worshipped by the people across the Roman Empire. So again, think about the people that had come out of this world. They were coming out of a world that worshipped many gods, and they didn't know that there was just one true God. They were ignorant of the one God of this world. And they were worshipping gods like Artemis. In fact, Artemis was the pride of the whole region. And to be from this area, you had a certain extra sense of religious and cultural pride because Artemis was connected with your city. But they also worshipped local and regional deities as well, and they were caught up in magic and incantations, they very much believed in a spiritual world, but they felt imprisoned by that world. They were always having to appease the gods and goddesses that they thought were governing the world. And again, they didn't know the true God uh, that we know through Jesus Christ. This is fun because it reminds me of the armor of God pieces that we read about in Ephesians 6. But I also want to use this as a symbol of what it, how else it would have been uh, to live in this world. You were living under Roman rule. And so Rome had conquered all the surrounding areas. Well, the Greeks actually had conquered before. Rome was just 
kind of bringing everyone together and trying to keep this group uh, very much a multicultural world, this group of conquered people uh, aligned under Roman power. And so you had this massive, powerful Roman Empire, and they expected people to fall in line and to integrate into this massive empire. And so the different cities around Ephesus would compete with each other to prove their loyalty to the gods. You would see this on the coins. You would see this in statues. The great poets and songwriters of the day would sing songs praising and elevating Rome. A nearby city talked about uh, Caesar Augustus, who was the first emperor of the Roman Empire, and they would use words of Caesar like God and Savior. And they would talk about his arrival as gospel, as good news for the world. And so if you're living as a Christian in Ephesus at this time, there were all these other gods and goddesses being worshipped, and people were basically worshiping Rome and its leaders as well. And here you were, standing out like a sore thumb, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what these early Christians were faced with. And then finally, here is a picture of a theater in Ephesus, a massive theater. And if you go back and read in Acts 19... There was such a religious revival happening when the gospel was preached through Paul's ministry that a riot developed. Paul's message was hurting the local economy. People were no longer buying images to Artemis. They were burning their magic scrolls and, and renouncing all of their allegiances to other gods. And so a riot formed because people said, enough is enough. We don't like these people. They're, they're turning the world upside down. They are disrupting our peaceful society. And a riot broke out, and Paul had to eventually leave the city. But the Christians there remained, and they continued to grow. And that's what we have in the letter to the, to the Ephesians. Now, they were asking questions, though, that are very similar to the questions that we ask in our, in our world today. What is real? What is God up to? Who am I? And who are my people? So now that we know a little bit about their world, we're going to move into our world a bit more because we have to ask these same questions. Maybe some of you are already asking these questions and others of us need to ask these questions. These are the questions that really matter in life and we can get so distracted and busy in life that we forget to ask and answer these questions. But Ephesians gives us a great opportunity to explore these questions in great depth. So let's start with a different type of world, though, a snow globe. So I picked up this uh, snow globe in Chicago a number of years ago. Um, you see a number of tall buildings in there that are part of the Chicago skyline. And you can almost imagine the, the little world that's contained in this snow globe. You can see people in these offices maybe talking to each other. How was your weekend? Oh, it was fine. How's your family? They're great. Uh, what's the weather like? Well, what do you think? It's going to snow again. So we're living in a snow globe. So they live in this small little world, but there's such a great big world outside this snow globe world that they're in. There's so much going on, so much beyond this snow globe. I think that we often get caught up in our own snow globe world. We get contained in with self-focus, with our own problems, with our own distractions, and we forget the greater reality beyond that world. In fact, you know, social media has algorithms that are designed to suck us into 
the small world of our screens, and before long, we've spent 30 minutes scrolling through things, um, the latest fads, the latest controversies, the latest distractions. But even beyond social media, we get caught up with the stresses of daily life, making a living. We get caught up in our own hopes and dreams, things that have some benefit to them, but if if this is the only life we're living, there's so much more. We dream about a better tomorrow for us and our family. We get caught up in our own professional development, our own family concerns. And even the world as a whole, we tend to have very small and limited snow globe hopes. We find hope in the latest technological breakthroughs that will solve all of our problems. We get caught up in political movements that we think will solve our cultural problems. And there are all sorts of human ideologies out there that that catch our attention and our world gets caught up in, but they're all ultimately within a small snow globe that's part of a much greater reality. So that's the first question I want us to explore today. What is real? And what does Ephesians Tell us about what is real. What is real? This could be one of the more important questions we can ask of ourselves and our world today. Because in a practical sense, some days I act as if only the things I can see and touch, measure, study with my own eyes, ears, my own mind, Sometimes I live my life as if that is the only thing that is real. Now those, the things that we can see, the world we live in, God created, he says it is good, says it is very good in Genesis chapter 1. But Ephesians reminds us that that's not the only thing that is real. That there's a greater unseen reality. Paul talks about this unseen reality five different times throughout the book of Ephesians. He calls it the heavenly places. Things that Paul insists are as real, if not more real, than even the things that we can see and touch with our own bodies today. But these heavenly places are an unseen existence where all sorts of spiritual powers dwell. Some good, like angels that we read about all throughout the Old and New Testament, but some also nefarious And he talks about these powers in various places in the book of Ephesians, that they enslave humans, that they are deceptive. He talks about them in the famous passage in Ephesians 6, where we learn about the armor of God. So we're not helpless against these powers. Again, the the Gentiles living in Ephesus that didn't know Christ would have felt somewhat helpless in the face of all these spiritual powers that they believed in and encountered. But in this spiritual realm, in the spiritual heavenly places, even though these malevolent spiritual powers exist, Ephesians also teaches us that we have the resources we need, and we need not be afraid of those spiritual powers. But we should know that they're out there, and we should know even more that God is out there. He is the king over these heavenly places. And Jesus, his son, the resurrected Jesus, is at God's right hand, even now as we speak. It's hard to imagine that unseen world. It's hard to tap into it. We're so used to the world that we see and experience with our senses. 
Paul is saying we need to develop spiritual discernment through prayer, through studying the Word of God, to be able to see and sense that that world is important. And that world is so, it's such a big part of the reality that we should be tapped into. So the spiritual places. What is real? It's more than just the things that we can touch, measure, reason about. There's a greater spiritual reality out there, and Ephesians introduces us to that reality. Next question. I seem to be having a problem advancing things here. Well, the next question is, what is God up to in our world? So we know that God is part of this unseen world, but what, is, what does he have to do with this world that we live in? This is the next important question. I don't know about you, but when you find out that you've lost something, and it could have been lost 10 minutes ago, or it could have been lost 10 months ago, and you start to look for that lost object, if you don't have some sense that you're actually going to find it, it's hard to stay motivated to look for it. So if you're looking for a lost item, and you just don't really know if it's even findable at this point, it can be hard to stay focused, hard to stay engaged in that pursuit. But think in contrast to the Easter egg hunts that your parents may have set up for you when you were a little kid. They've, they've placed your favorite candies in these eggs on Easter morning. They've, they've hid those eggs throughout the house. And your parents are reassuring you, okay, it's going to take some work to find these, but don't worry. I know where they are all hidden. And if you need help, I'll give you those you know, that help. I hope you do know where your eggs are hidden when you hide them. Sometimes that's bad when you, like, okay, you've only found 11 of the 12. There's another one out there, and you find it six months later. Candy's no longer good at that point. But assuming that your parent has done that work of, of knowing where everything's hidden, it frees you up to search for things with a greater motivation because you know it can be found. And I think a lot of times when we live in a snow globe world and we're not sure what the end is, is all about in that world, we can lose our focus and we can begin to wander. We can begin to forget the greater purposes of God. So praise the Lord, God has given us a very clear look at what our world is headed for. And it's in the very first chapter of Ephesians. It's in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. So what is God up to? Where is this world heading? Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. God made known to us the mystery of His will. Okay, that's interesting. I am alert to what comes next because I want to know what is the mystery of the God of the universe. And here it is. It's according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So all this is just build up. God has a purpose. He's placed all of this in play. He's set it in motion with a sense of intentionality and purpose. He's setting it forth in Christ, so Christ is key to this plan, and it's a plan that's going to come together in the fullness of time. Okay, but what exactly is that plan, Paul? That plan is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is this world headed towards? It's headed towards this final era, this eternal era of existence where everything that God created in the seen world and the unseen world gets united together as one under Christ's lordship, under his kingly rule. 
So just like that Easter egg hunt, as Christians, we can live our life, we can seek the Lord in prayer, in our daily walk with the Lord, with that sense of assurance, this is world, where the world is heading towards. God has a plan that he's hatched since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, to one day bring everything under his son's dominion, under his son's perfect reign, who unite everything in the seen and unseen world, and those who know him will be part of it, and we will be with the Lord forever under Jesus' perfect reign. Elsewhere in the Bible, that's called the kingdom of God. And that's what we have to look for, the full appearance of God's kingdom. That day, will he will unite everything in the seen and unseen world under Christ's rule. Praise the Lord. He set this forth in Christ, and that's where we come in. Christ, the one we read about in the four Gospels, the one we just celebrated uh, over Christmas and Advent. He is the key to who we are. But before we jump to Christ, the Bible, and especially Ephesians, tells a great before and after story about who we are. Uh, some of you may enjoy watching shows about extreme home makeovers. I confess I've never watched those shows myself, but from what I understand, you take these really you know, houses that have seen better days and you, you know, dramatically overhaul them and transform them, and everyone gets excited and celebrates at the end. And we, as people, if we're in Christ, we have experienced this extreme makeover in our lives. And Ephesians gives us both the before and the after picture to make sure that we don't miss this dramatic act of grace that God has given us in our lives. So, thinking about the original audience, most of the audience that Paul was writing, they were Gentiles. And this isn't going to be projected on screen, but I'll read it to you and listen to the way that Paul describes these Gentiles, the, the before picture of their lives before they came to know Christ. This is in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What a bleak picture. And again, these Gentiles were worshiping idols, so that's not surprising that they were blind to the light of Christ and were living in darkness that their thinking was distorted, that their hearts were hardened. They weren't aware of this greater reality or the God that was doing something behind the scenes in that reality. But that was true of idol-worshiping Gentiles of Paul's time, but it's also true of all of us. And look at what Ephesians 2 says about anyone, whether you're from a Jewish background and among Paul's earliest readers or this idolatrous background or from a kind of a good, you know, Middle of America, small-town, church-going community like ours. Ephesians, oops, we're not there yet, I'm sorry. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, before we get to this, still describing the before picture. And listen to, listen to how Paul describes that. This is true of all of us in the before. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan himself who's at work in these unseen heavenly places. He's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul describes this in very accurate terms, but bleak terms, that we were once dead in our sins. He paints the picture of us all being sinners. And that sin involves choices that we make, so individual trespasses, he calls them, or sins going against God's perfect ways and His perfect will. But he also pictures us as sinners who are enslaved to Satan and to the powers of this world, slaved to our own sinful desires. Uh, We're enslaved, we're in over our heads. As sinners, we were trapped and helpless and we had no way out, is what Paul describes in the before picture of our lives. But in that very same passage, we begin to see the dramatic transformation that Christ brings us in our lives. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, God steps into our bleak before picture as sinners doomed and dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I love this two-verse section. It mentions the character of God that's driving His transformation of our lives, that's driving the extreme makeover that we experience in Christ. He's rich in mercy, so we, we have a merciful God who lives outside the snow globe, but is very real and is at work in our world. He is a God of mercy. And it talks about the great love with which he loved us. He's a loving God who doesn't leave us in our helpless situation, but steps in and dramatically turns our lives around. And then it's by grace you've been saved. God is a God of grace, giving us something we didn't deserve. He didn't look at our spiritual resume and respond to us. He didn't think about all the nice things we had done. And, and reward us, he saw us as the helpless sinners that we were, stepped into our lives, and through Christ, when we re- believe in him and receive his grace, we experience this new life that's talked about in this passage, and this salvation that's talked about in this passage. This extreme makeover is so impressive that Paul describes it with a number of different images and analogies throughout this letter. So here we see that he makes us alive in Christ. He also saves us from death and judgment in Christ. But elsewhere throughout this letter, he talks about us being forgiven. So part of this extreme makeover is that all those sins that we've committed in our lives and those sins that we continue to commit are forgiven at the cross of Christ. They're wiped away. Jesus takes them on himself. And in his death on the cross, he forgives us of our sins. Paul also says that this extreme makeover means that we're adopted into God's family. That God graciously brings us through Christ into the family of God. and We become children of God. In a sense, we become brothers of Christ. Christ 
the one and only Son of God, shares that sonship with us, and we too become children of God as part of this extreme makeover. Paul also says that we're redeemed, and that's language of being released from slavery. And remember, we weren't just, we're not just people with free will who just choose to sin, although that is true. We're also enslaved to sin, and Christ's redemption breaks us free from the chains of that slavery to sin. Paul also mentions reconciliation, and that is a word that talks about us moving from being enemies of God to being friends of God, and we're reconciled, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're brought into a friendly relationship with God once again through Christ. So who am I in Christ? By the grace of God, I now have value, my sins are forgiven, I'm part of God's family, I'm now at peace with God through Christ. I've been adopted into his family, and I've been given new life. The book of Ephesians is divided into two sections. The first three chapters really talk about these gifts and this extreme makeover that Jesus has brought to us. It describes in great detail. It says it's by grace alone, nothing we did to earn it. The second three chapters, though, chapters 4 through 6, Describe how we respond to that new identity. So these things have been done to us. We've been given eternal value and worth and life through Christ. The last three chapters talk about how we live out that life in Christ. Here's just a sampling of that. You were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created in, after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So think about this. We've been made new. We've been made alive in Christ. That's who we are now. That's the thing that's most fundamental about our identity. So what's our task then? On a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis... We go through the process of leaving behind that old before self and putting on that new, redeemed, adopted, enlivened self in our relational practices, in the things that we're doing that no one else sees, in the way that we're re relating to people in the broader world. The Christian life is one of constantly living into that new identity that we've been given putting off the old identity and leaning into that new identity. Elsewhere, Paul talks about that in terms of just putting on that, the new clothes of righteousness that, that Jesus has given us. So that's who we are in Christ. And for these next few weeks, look out specifically in these first two chapters of Ephesians in particular, all the times that Paul stresses that we are now in Christ or in Him, or in Jesus, or in the beloved Son. Everything about us now is primarily defined by Jesus. Now, we don't leave behind our gifts and our skills and our personalities and our family connections, our community connections, but the most important thing about us becomes the fact that we're now in Christ, and His love and grace is what defines us. Finally, who are my people? Well, Paul describes 
a beautiful picture of Jews and Gentiles coming together as one family in Christ. There's this old stone in, that used to exist in the Jerusalem temple that um, basically gave a warning for people who were Gentiles, who were in the outer courts of the Jerusalem temple, and it warned them, you better not step over the line to the inner courts because only Jewish people can be there. Only God's people. The Jews were, were and are God's people, and they were the only ones that were allowed to come into this inner temple courts. And there was a warning even at the, the threat of death against Gentiles doing that. So for the original readers, who are my people, was getting dramatically reworked. Suddenly, my people are, is anyone else who is in Christ? Anyone else who's undergone that extreme makeover? So for Paul, it was Jews and Gentiles were part of the same family, male and female, and even slave and free. 20% of the Roman world was, were slaves. And so slave and free were all on the same footing in the family of God. For us, we define ourselves in some silly ways, like who's your favorite sports team? Really sad about the Colts last night. Uh, but we tend to put a lot of identity and value. Those are my people, other fellow fans of this team. Generationally, right, I'm a millennial or Gen X or Gen Z or a baby boomer. That becomes so important to us. But even in other more significant ways, you know, what political party do I uh, associate with or what country am I from, we tend to define ourselves by those types of divisions. But again, Paul in Ephesians says, my people, that's anyone who's in a relationship with Christ, who's been made new in Christ, who's been made alive in Christ. And you think about that this morning. As we sit here worshiping here in Tipton, Indiana, there are churches all across North America that are worshiping as well. And those that worship God in spirit and truth are part of our family. And then hours ago, in other parts of the world, there have been other people gathering together, some in house churches in China, we got to be a part of when we were there a number of years ago. Uh, churches and other persecuted places, and even churches throughout time that have worshipped the Lord Jesus in spirit and truth, those are our people. The early house churches, they were few in number, but they were becoming part of a network of churches around the Roman Empire that were communicating with each other. Those were their people. The churches and believers across the world today, those are our people. And God makes us one. He unites us in his son. and We become one in Christ. And we care for them. They care for us. We pray for them. They pray for us. And we become one family. And we're designed to grow together. I'm so excited to see the choice you made to show up and to worship corporately this morning. Paul understood that God works in us corporately. He doesn't work on us simply individually, but he works on us with our people as we gather together and worship each Sunday and even throughout the week. And Paul says, we're not just gathering together as a social club. We are actually the new temple, the holy people of God. When we gather together and we're growing together, God himself is present with us by his spirit. So we don't meet just for pragmatic reasons. We don't think, well, I could do the same thing online as I do here in person. But as we gather together, God himself is present and we grow as one together. To bring all this together, we can look at this fascinating passage that captures the beauty of God's people. 
Paul says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let's just pause to capture this for a moment. Again, to break out of our snow globe ex- existence. It mentions here these authorities and rulers in the heavenly places. So these powerful, mysterious powers in the world beyond our sight and touch and experience. They are learning something about God and His plans through us. Through the church, through our very existence as a group of diverse but united people who have been made new and made alive in Christ, through our very existence, through the church, God puts His manifold wisdom on display to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So again, as we gather together, we're not simply um, encouraging each other on a human level and, and meeting to accomplish goals on a human level, but our existence and our gathering testifies to the unseen world that one day God's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And in a sense, we are exhibit A of that. If God can do that for a diverse group of people like us this morning, taking us from our different backgrounds and interests and families and make us one in Christ, that's proof that he's going to do that for the whole world, seen and unseen someday as well. So I hope that gives you a sense of what's at stake as we gather together and what God's doing in and through us as we gather together. And what a treat to think, think of studying this letter for weeks and months uh, in the future. Let's pray together. Father, as we read these just brief glimpse, glimpses of the book of Ephesians today, we recognize that these are wonderful truths almost beyond our imagination. We need your Spirit's help to fully understand, but maybe even more to appreciate these truths and not to settle for our snow globe existence alone. Lord, whatever hit home today, I pray you would help us carry it with us down uh, throughout this week, and I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your instruction through the book of Ephesians, through your Apostle Paul in these weeks and months to come. May your spirit apply and imprint these truths into our heart um, for our good and for the blessing of those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.